Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. When you mention the name of George Hellas, several things may come to mind. Born in 1895, Hellas was the founder of the Chicago Bears as well as the National Football League. But he was also an outfielder for the New York Yankees and he was the MVP of the 1919 Rose Bowl before settling in as the owner and coach of the Bears for several decades. Hellas was the one person I've always wanted to meet, since his lofty stature often contains more fiction than fact due to his legendary nature. Since this gridiron legend passed away in 1983, the opportunity to personally conduct an interview session has long been gone. However, since Hellas was such a legacy, He left much behind in terms of published quotations along with his esteemed autobiography simply called Hellas. So, based on what I know now in 2021, which isn't much, I decided to research suitable answers to some of the key questions that I would like to ask Mr. Hellas if he was around today. Please note that all of the Hellas responses are drawn from his published quotations over the past 100 years, a century worth. Hopefully, they will provide us with a concise viewpoint of not only George Hallis, but also the very early days of the NFL itself. Our interview time frame begins in early 1920 and ends in 1925. By 1920, Hallis had graduated from the University of Illinois and played in the 1919 Rose Bowl with the Great Lakes Naval Training Center team. After his discharge from the service, Hellas spent the summer of 1919 with the New York Yankees organization and then completed the year with the Hammond, Indiana pro football team. By the spring of 1920, he was working in Chicago for the Chicago, Burlington and Quincy Railroad in the bridge design department. This prompted my first question for Mr. Hellas. And since I'm not very good at imitating voices, I'm going to ask the uh, questions of Mr. Hellas, and then I'm going to answer them. First question. Since you had a secure job with the railroad, what made you suddenly accept a job in Decatur, Illinois, back in 1920? Hellas responded. In March of 1920, a man telephoned me at the railroad office and asked if I would meet him at the Sherman Hotel in Chicago. His name was Mr. Chamberlain. And he asked if I would like to move to Decatur, Illinois to work for the Staley Company, play on the baseball team there, and manage and coach the football team as well as play on it. Hmm. Then I asked, were you hired to simply play sports for the Staley Company? And he said, no. In between times, I would learn how to make starch, putting my engineering and chemical training to use, and start a lifetime career in this fast-growing concern. I asked, what type of salary did Mr. Chamberlain offer you? Did you make the move strictly for the money? I don't remember how much money he offered. It may have been a little less than the $55 per week the railroad paid me. The magnet for me was the opportunity to build a winning football team. 
So, I asked, you spent the summer playing baseball for the Staleys as well as recruiting excellent players for the football team. In 1919, the Staleys played mostly local teams in Illinois. Did you feel the need for a stronger schedule rather than agreeing to play a local team, often with just a few days' notice? He responded, I thought the Staleys in 1920 were strong enough and had gone behind this mobile situation. I wrote various teams suggesting games. Replies were indifferent and vague. Simply, we needed an organization. Was there anything you did to help get the ball rolling for an organized National League, Mr. Hallis? Well, I wrote to Ralph Hay, the manager of the Canton Bulldogs, one of the best run and most prominent teams. I mentioned our need for a league. He called a meeting on September 17, 1920 at his automobile showroom in Canton, Ohio. We all agreed on the need for a league. In just two hours, we created the American Professional Football Association. Hmm. Now that you were in charge of the Staley's football team, what could you offer the players that you were recruiting for the team? Alice responded. In order to compete with established clubs like the Canton Bulldogs for players, the Staley's offered a package deal which included a year-round job with the starch company and a share of the profits from the gate receipts. And the real clincher, at least from my viewpoint as a coach, was Staley's decision that the players could practice two hours a day on company time. So, as far as I know, we were the first pro team that ever held organized daily practice drills. So coach, how did the Decatur Staley's finish in 1920? We had won 10, lost one and tied two. In all 13 games, our opponents had scored just once. We proclaimed ourselves world champions. Uh, But didn't the league declare the undefeated Akron pros as the APFA champions? And I should say at this point, Mr. Hallis just shrugged. So I moved on to the next question. Overall, was the season successful in terms of the financial return? Well, the 1920 season confirmed my belief that professional football had a great future. But professional football was also expensive. We were an artistic success, but somewhat of a financial flop. Our 1920 loss of $14,406 was assumed by the Staley Company, which charged the football team the two and a half hours each man lost from his job each day due to practice. Mr. A.E. Staley had agreed that gate earnings would be split among the players. The share averaged around $125 per man for each game played. I, as coach, player, and manager, was voted an extra share. My take for the year was about $2,300. Hmm. Well, coach, what type of offense did you run in Decatur? Whoa, we were the darndest, although he didn't say darndest, shifting team you ever saw. In fact, it wasn't until 1921, after we had moved the team to Chicago, that we decided we were using so much of our energy shifting, we had little left for play execution. We used to start in a T and shift into a Notre Dame box. Then we'd start in a T and go into a single wing. Then from a T into a Minnesota wing. Man, we had that rhythm down pretty good, but we were worn out sometimes by halftime. Well, coach, Tell us then how the move to Chicago evolved when you left Decatur and moved to the Windy City. 
Mr. Staley asked me to come to his office during the 1921 season. I had no idea what he wanted. We had only talked on the field previously. George, he said, I know you are more interested in football than starch. As you know, there is a slight recession in the country. Time lost practicing and playing cost a huge amount of money. I feel we can no longer underwrite the team's losses. Why don't you take the team to Chicago? I think football will go over big there. Well, I was dumbfounded. Then he said, I'll give you $5,000 seed money to pay costs until the gate receipts start coming in. I only ask that you continue to call the team the Staley's for one season. My response was, I will do it, I said. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you very much, Mr. Staley. We shook hands. So I asked him, once in Chicago, you quickly rented Cubs Park, now known as Wrigley Field, for your home. What did that cost you? I telephoned Mr. William Veck Sr. and asked if I could come see him. I told him that I was bringing the Staley team to Chicago and I would like to use Cubs Park as our home field for practice as well as for our home games. He welcomed the idea. I asked him, so how much would it cost to rent your park? And he quickly said, 15% of the gross gate receipts and we keep the profits from the concessions. Hmm. That sounds fair, I countered, if we keep the profits from the scorecards as well. Good enough, said Vec. You sell the scorecards. I considered that very fair. I rejoiced silently that he did not ask for a fixed rent, which might incur early obligations that I could not meet financially. So then I said, why was the sale of the scorecard so important to you? Well, we had charged 10 cents a piece for the scorecards in Decatur, netting almost $300 for the season, and I didn't want to let that plum fall into Vex's hands. Besides, there was a business expression I had read somewhere, never pay the first price, and I didn't want to appear over-anxious. Certainly, I didn't want Vec to think that this was my first experience in a business deal, even though it was. Now that you were off the Staley payroll and not receiving regular paychecks, what was your biggest personal challenge with the move to Chicago, Coach? First and foremost, I had to get a job in Chicago to support myself until the team started making money, whenever that might be. Also, while supporting myself, I had to find time to sign the players, coach the club, write the publicity, distribute tickets, arrange the schedule, and handle half a dozen other chores. And I went to work selling automobiles. So then, what did your new partner, Dutch Sternemann, do for outside work, and where did you locate the team offices? As I recall, said Hellis, Dutch landed a job in a gasoline station. Lacking an office, we held our daily business meetings in the rear of the lobby of the Planters Hotel. In fact, we even signed our players at the Planters. If we had to get together during the day, it was pretty normal just to drive one of the autos over to his gas station for a fill-up, and we could talk. Moving ahead, I asked, how would you describe C.C. Pyle, Red Grange's manager, both of whom became part of the Bears' history in 1925 when the Bears signed Red Grange, the galloping ghost, right out of the University of Illinois? Ellis said, I didn't know quite what to make of Pyle, but certainly we couldn't lose anything by negotiating with him. 
Pyle was an interesting man. I noted how carefully he dressed and how well tended was his mustache. His shoes were brilliant. He spoke well. He was suave. I felt I was in the presence of a born promoter. Frankly, Dutch and I figured that a middle-aged, small-town theater owner who wore spats might not prove too tough an opponent in financial negotiations for a couple of smart young men like us from Chicago. But whoa, we considerably underestimated Mr. C.C. Pyle. How so, coach? Well, Dutch and I were prepared to offer Pyle a flat third of our net profits for Grange's services. It developed that C.C. also thought a one-third split of the profits was fair. However, his proposition differed from ours in one rather important respect. He figured that the bear should retain only one-third, leaving two-thirds for Grange and Pyle. Hmm. It seems that once Grange was signed, the Bears and the NFL took on a new life, Coach. With typical crowds being in the five to 10,000 range before Grange, what was the ticket situation like for his first NFL game against the Cardinals on Thanksgiving Day in 1925? Well, we sold all 36,000 tickets that day and could have sold 30,000 more. I knew then and there that pro football was destined to be a big time sport. Coach, you have been very generous with your time today, and we appreciate it. However, we would be remiss, especially for fans out there, if we failed to ask you about one final topic. You are never shy when dealing with referees. We have heard that an official's decision in the 1919 Rose Bowl on a disputed pass reception impacted how you viewed officials in the future. Could you expand on that theory, Mr. Hallis? Yes. Later in life, when victory meant the Bears ate well, I concerned myself vitally with official decisions. Since that Rose Bowl, I have always tried to assist officials to make correct calls. Over the years, I have achieved some success in this pursuit. Well, finally, can you recall any time when the officials might have disagreed with your input? Oh, yes, again. One time, an official named Jim Durfee called us for a five-yard penalty. I yelled across at him, what was that for? And he said, coaching from the sidelines, which of course was illegal back then. Well, I said, that just proves how dumb you are. That's a 15 yard penalty, not five yards. And Durfee responded, yeah, but the penalty for your kind of coaching is only five yards. Another time he penalized us for 15 yards. So I yelled, you stink. So he marched off another 15 yards he turned to me and yelled, How do I smell from here, coach? Well, we thank the ever vociferous George Hallis for joining us tonight through the power of the spoken words he left behind many years ago. His insight into the very early days of the NFL and the Chicago Bears was both informative and entertaining. On the next episode of When Football Was Football, We'll celebrate Super Bowl week with a look back at the last championship for the Cardinals in their 1947 title game with the Eagles at Frozen Comiskey Park in Chicago. Thanks as always for joining us on the Sports History Network. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup, the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast. It's a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squires, a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on the Sports History Network, as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.